Hi everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, our September 16th weekly podcast episode. We're thrilled to find ourselves at the 38th installment of this experiment, three quarters of the way through 2018, and 38 author interviews into season one. next week we'll bring you our interview with author Tina Wolf of Exacting Justice and our short story Runaway by Joan O'Callaghan from World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. On September 30th we'll close up the month with our interview with true crime author Nate Henley, The Boy on the Bicycle. And Nate had joined us once before back in February and um, I recently reviewed his book on our August 25th um, episode and I greatly enjoyed his book so I really was looking forward to speaking with him again and I'm so pleased that he agreed to come back on the show. For today we're delighted to introduce you to the author of The Best Girl, Joan Hicks Boone and I'll also read to you from my story Axe Husband, which appeared in North on the Yellowhead. This week, the big news was the greatly anticipated release of Fear by two-time Pulitzer Prize recipient, journalist Bob Woodward. Mr. Woodward is a longtime Washington Post journalist and now associate editor who, along with one of my personal favorite people, Carl Bernstein, co-authored the brilliant expose all the President's Men. And if you haven't read All the President's Men, boy, do I ever highly recommend it. I had the Audible edition from Simon & Schuster of Fear on pre-order, and I couldn't wait to dig in the moment it loaded onto my phone. I was not disappointed. Many have written about this current president, and I've read a number of those fine works, some of which I've reviewed here on the Dead to Rights podcast. I was deeply impressed and frightened by David Frum's Trumpocracy, suitably shocked and concerned by Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, and touched and persuaded by A Higher Loyalty by FBI Director James Comey, who was fired by the president on May 9th of 2017. This book, Fear, stood out. Simply put, it approaches the story of this malignant administration from inside the White House. So when you hear on the news that uh, the calls are jokingly said to be coming from inside the House, that's what they're referring to. Relying exclusively on first-hand accounts by, in many cases, anonymous sources, corroborated by a number of others who were also there, this is an intimate tale spun by a trusted storyteller a breath of terror around a fireside, drawing each listener or reader deep into the inner circle, the boardroom, the high-level meetings. The audible reading by Robert Petkoff, the narrator, is professional and flawless. I found the overall story to have the effect of a frightened whisper in my ear. And intimate is the word that I keep coming back to, intimate and highly plausible. In his own words, Mr. Woodward describes these times as Trump against the facts. And I caught that on an interview with Fareed Zakaria's GPS uh, today, in fact. I suspect that the printed book, Fear, as opposed to the Audible edition, might pack an even greater punch in this case. I'm tempted to order it to see if I'm right. 
As a huge fan of Audible, I find my to-be-read list has gone from being hopelessly long to being somewhat possible since I began listening to my top choices rather than attempting to read every single one. But in this case, the full, riveted attention that we give to the printed page might just be even more powerful a method of delivery for this terrifying story of a White House in turmoil, a president unfit and circling the proverbial bowl of reality. Having said that, the Audible edition was plenty frightening enough, and I'm not sure I need even more spills and chills than I already experienced from this book. Just to give you an indication of what I'm talking about, here are a handful of top cabinet quotes from the book to fill your cup. Idiot. Effing idiot. Moron. Effing moron. Understanding of a fifth grader. Effing liar. I'm not going to share the names of the speakers here. Many of our listeners will already know from the news reports who is responsible for each of these quotes. And it hardly matters as the rampant expressions of concern are interchangeable between these members of the highest level inner circle of this administration. They are all top people who are speaking, I assure you. In summary, I highly recommend you buy this book in your favorite format today, if you haven't already. It's not a long read, not in the least onerous, but it is a critical piece of the puzzle to help us all understand what is really happening right before our eyes, and one day this will all be history, and if we read the right material and we find out what's going on now, we'll be able to say we knew and we were there. I'm not sure how much that will help us, but, um, you know, it, it is something at least to hang on to. It's stunningly well written by a master, Bob Woodward. It's logically laid out, and again, I have to emphasize, it is an intimate portrayal of this reality soup. This is already a huge bestseller, and I predict there will be more literary accolades heaped onto the already august head of Mr. Bob Woodward. Join us next week when I'll give you my review of A Noise Downstairs, the latest thriller by celebrated crime writer Linwood Barclay. Again, I burned rubber through the Audible edition, and I can't wait to share my thoughts on this great crime novel with you. And now, please give a huge Dead to Rights welcome to our guest author for this week, Joan Hicks Boone. Ms. Boone is an author and speaker from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Joan is a former registered nurse who practiced in a variety of settings in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area for over 32 years. In her memoir, The Best Girl, Joan Hicks Boone takes readers through the experience of growing up in a family struggling with alcoholism, domestic violence, neglect, and other dysfunctions. Throughout the book, readers will see and feel what Joan saw and felt as a toddler, a young child, and an adolescent, and how throughout all that happens, she holds out hope that by being the best girl, her father will be healed and her mother will smile. Joan is currently busy working on her second book, The Choice Maker, which is a sequel to Let The Best Girl. Hello? 
Good morning. Is this Joan Hicks Boone? Yes, this is me. Good morning, Joan. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm very well, thank you. It was a pleasure to have you. I wanted to talk to you about your book, The Best Girl, which I believe came out in April of 2018. Is that correct? Excellent. I was looking it over, and it looks like, uh, frankly, it looks like the story of my childhood. So um, it, it looks, in particular, very intimate and uh, quite a story of terror. Can you tell us what, what prompted you to write it? Uh, well, at first, um, I was just wanting to um, write some stories down for sort of just for the family. Um, I have an older brother and a younger sister, and we're uh, quite far apart in age. My brother is six years older and my sister eight years younger. And the um, sort of the uh, worst, not, not necessarily that there hadn't been violence before, but um, the worst of the violence uh, was happening um, after my brother had left home for uh, to start his adult life. And... Um, my sister was quite young, and so um, I'm sort of the keeper of a lot of memories uh, and um, incidents and uh, things like that, and so I was just going to write a few of those stories down, and I started taking some writing classes at the Loft Literary Center here in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, mm -hmm. and um, the instructor that I had, uh, Patricia Houlihan, uh, encouraged me to do more and more writing, and uh, pretty soon I had a book going. And so then I sat with my uh, brother and sister and uh, made sure they were okay with me, um, you know, more writing a book versus just writing a few uh, Yes, because these are very personal stories, not only for you, but for them as well. So I would think that you really exactly. have to have them on board. Now, it's a two-edged sword coming public, I know, because I've been public for years about the domestic abuse and the alcoholism and uh, just the general rage that I grew up subjected to. Um, it, it takes an awful lot of courage when you first go public, and it's not always rewarded in, in um, the way you might hope. Can you tell us how it was received when you first went public? Um, watching what's happening and um, 
and she wanted me to read it out loud for the class. And many of the people that were in that class were writing about um, very personal, very deep, uh, troubling things. And so it was a fairly safe uh, place to do it. Um, but I chose to go last because I was really nervous. And um, my husband actually had just read the, uh, the draft of the chapter, what turned out to be a chapter in the book, um, just moments before the class started because we had met up ahead of the class. So he had just found out about um, the details of that story. And uh, by the time I got done reading that, um, well, there was silence in the room, um, for sure. And um, it was a very uh, comforting silence, I would say. Um, and then I just broke down and um, had a very difficult time even getting out of my chair and leaving yeah. class that night. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but the more I wrote, and of course I had a counselor while I was writing, and, and I've had a lot of counseling uh, throughout my life, which um, most of these incidents had been dealt with uh, in various, you know, modes of counseling. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but then the next, um, I'd say the next time that I went public was actually during some pre-launch events that I did. Um, so I had just um, achieved my publishing contract last September, and in October, I um, hosted a, a pre-launch event, I guess is what I'm going to call it, and uh, I had it at this little um, community uh, building in Minneapolis, and it was absolutely beautiful setting. And I had, uh, by that time, I had about 60 people following me on Facebook, and so I invited them all. And I had another maybe 20 on my email list. I invited them all, and um, they all came. And I read, the way I formatted that was I read a chapter that, um, you know, similar to the first chapter, a, a very disturbing one. And then I did a presentation on domestic violence because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Yes. And then I finished it with a um, what I call the respite chapters. So there are chapters scattered throughout the book that are just average, normal childhood kind of chapters. And in October, I chose to do the uh, Apple Pie Day chapter where my mom makes pies. And then I catered in... Um, apple pie. So everybody had pie while they were listening um, to that chapter. And so it was, uh, uh, and, and we had question and answer um, as well. And um, I think I was very nervous to do it, uh, but I had planned it. I had scripted it. I um, knew everyone that was going to be there pretty much. Um, and it was so well received. Good, and good. Questions that, the questions that came out from the audience really showed me how little uh, information people actually have. Unless they've lived it. I mean, and there are a high proportion of the population who has lived it. But for anyone who hasn't right. lived it, they really, really don't, they don't understand. Exactly. And, um, I was worried as yeah. you were telling this story about how it would be received because I've had my own experiences about 
how going public is received. And um, when you're in a safe setting of people who are accustomed to thinking in different ways, um, that's one thing. But when you're just going public with friends, with relatives, um, it yeah. can be quite different. Um, in particular, in my case, yeah. oh. there was a lot of sexual abuse as well as physical emotional and witness abuse. I call this witness abuse when as a young child you're forced to witness violence against others. Um, it, it's extremely damaging and uh, you yeah. know all of those were thrown in in my case and I found it um, you know I, I tend to be quite a forthright person but of course I wasn't always. I used to be extremely withdrawn and when I first started trying to put this forward there was a lot of resistance. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think, too, so then from the October event, everyone that was at the October event was invited again to the uh, similar event in November, um, but they all had to invite at least one person that um, knew nothing about me or the book. So then the November one was where it was really, um, I was meeting new people, and um, I mean, they, they knew what the book was about in general, but um, uh, that was probably the first time that, like you say, is people, um, as nervous as I was in October, it still was kind of safe because I knew everybody. Mm -hmm. um, in, November, I, in November, I had 120 people there, and I probably only knew the 50 from the October event, personally. Right. So, um, yeah. Um, but again, very well received, and um, my sister was able to come to that one. She hadn't been able to come to the one in October. Um, it's been very difficult for her to um, to go public. I would say yes, um, yes, yes. I mean, I can't. I try never to speak for my sisters. Um, well, the one who, exactly. who the one who committed suicide when we were young. I do speak for her quite blatantly because. She's got no one to speak for her. I mean, she's not here. But I have a younger sister, uh -huh. and I try very hard never to speak for her because she uh -huh. is nine years younger than I am, and her experience would have been quite different. And uh, exactly. I'll tell you what she tells me, that up until the age of 12, she has no memories. So wow. I don't know whether that just means that um, when the lion asks the rabbit how his breath is, he just says, I'm sorry, sir, I have a cold, you know? I don't know right. really what that means, having no memories till 12. I certainly envy it um, because my right. memories are extremely vivid and extremely real. Right. Um, and I don't yeah. really feel I have any gaps in those areas. Uh, there's a lot of gaps I wish I did have. Right. Agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I try, I try yeah. not to speak for them. I try not to put any memories into her, her mouth. I, I try to keep it exactly what I witnessed exactly what I experienced um, and uh, yep. and devil take the hindmost because I will not be silent right 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 yeah and there are some things that um, you know like my brother uh, he has uh, not not read the book from cover to cover yet um, he's uh, read you know parts of it uh, also difficult for him but he'll say he'll say to me when we're talking so hey, is, you know, this or that in the book? And I'll be like, no, because I don't remember that. And so mm -hmm. I only wrote about things that I remember. Yeah. And I said, I believe you, you know, just that 
you know, that I was there and, you know, what have you, um, but whether I was too young to remember that or mm-hmm. some of them, some of the ones he's bringing up are good things, you know, um, but I, I, uh, I don't, I only wrote about things that I personally remembered and also agree with you, I don't speak for the two of them at all. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that people don't understand is when you live in the kingdom of a monster, the monster is king. But the monster has benign yeah. moments. The monster can even have quite, uh, quite uh, positive moments. Uh, there were a lot of positive right. things about my father, a lot. And people don't understand, how can you still love this person? Because I did. I loved him yeah. deeply, and I cared for him right up until his death. Um, you yeah. know, uh, I never turned my yeah. back on my parents, and people often didn't yeah. understand that. But let me put it in this light. They raised me the same as everyone's parents raised them. They took us on trips. They spent time with us. And I always tried, even when I am being blatantly honest about the abuse, I always try to put it in the context of a man who was terrified of losing his family. He knew he was a terrible father. He knew he had demons that he, for whatever reason, either didn't or couldn't control. Um, Right. And he also had a background that was probably even more abusive than mine was. So, right. you know, right. I try to keep it in that context. And it's funny because I always had that sense ever since I was a child that he came from some real terrors. And it was only when he was dying, when he was not lucid anymore, that that started to come out. He thought I was his sister. I think I looked a lot like her. And she had passed many years earlier, and he would call me by her name, and he would talk to me about things, and um, some of the things that came out, you know, I had guessed at, let's put it that way. Gave you some insight. Yeah. 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 So it made me very glad that I had decided, and I'm no hero, believe me, I'll say anything if if I believe it's true, Um, but it, it made me glad that I had chosen to care and to try to forgive. Right. Because I think that he'd already had enough pain, and especially after my sister committed suicide, you know, I think recriminations tend to go out the door after an event like that. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I'm sorry to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yes. I know uh, at one of the events, somebody asked me, um, you know, how how do I feel about my dad? And and, um, what I said was... um, I, I feel very sorrowful. I just have sorrow in mm-hmm. my heart for him. Um, I wasn't able to um, be with him uh, like you were with your father uh, because he, uh, my dad ended up uh, becoming homeless. Um, that doesn't come out strongly yet in this book. It'll be more in the next one. But um, because of that um, and because of his declining mental illness, um, he kind of ends up, in a way, just disappearing from our lives, even mm-hmm. though um, mm-hmm. the, the possibility of him showing up again was always still there because we knew yeah. it was possible. Um, but I just always felt like something, even as a child, I'm just, I just was like, what happened? What is wrong with you? You know, And he could never get any help, whether... Yeah. 
And I don't know if, if any was ever offered and he refused it or, you know, I don't know that part mm-hmm. of it, but I just know he never received any help at all. And, um, and I had, uh, there's a pretty powerful scene in the book where I'm uh, describing my process of how I forgave him mm-hmm. uh, for what he did. But um, even before I did that, I just always felt so sorry for him that yes. he had this in him, and it couldn't be, you know, helped, I guess. The, the yeah. life that, this is what always really troubles me even to this day, um, the life that he could have had with all of us. And they yeah. came from a generation, and I'm sure your parents did too, where they didn't leave each other. Um, my mother really never wanted to leave him, and it was only when... Um, he beat her so badly one day that she almost died. She was bedridden. She refused to go to the hospital. The doctors came into the house. Um, wow. And in those days, they didn't have to report everything the way they do now. So she refused to go to the hospital because she knew that it would be reported in the hospital. And uh, he, would be, yeah. he would be jailed. And he was a military man. It would destroy what was left of his career. Um, Oh, yeah. And so the doctors came into the house. She was in bed for three weeks. She had uh, broken ribs. Her face was unrecognizable. Now, my mother was four foot nine. At her prime, she was 95 pounds. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, she was a tiny little bird of a woman. And her yeah. face was distorted and bulged and completely black when we saw her lying in that bed. You couldn't recognize her at all. Um, and right. that was when she finally was able to get out of bed. She did pack us up and we left. But um, that was, I was 13 at the time. Um, my older sister was 15 and my younger sister would have been probably five, I think. Um, I think that's the way the ages worked. So that's what it took for her to finally leave him. And at that point he did get help because he didn't want to lose his family. And so right. even a little help is life-changing. Right, right. You know, yeah. I think that's the only the only reason we still had our parents in our lives is because of that little bit of help. Yes, mm. or the hope that it's going to happen. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I always when I sign my books, I write always hold on to hope, and you know, there, I have a lot of meaning behind that phrase. Mm-hmm. But that is part of it, is I always held on to hope that at some, you know, someday he was going to uh, get some help and mm-hmm. uh, be able to uh, maybe not stop altogether what he was doing, but um, just be a better person, be, yeah. the, be the person that he possibly could have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly, because the real tragedy is the, you know, even when you don't lose someone to suicide through it all, there's a, a definite loss of all your lives from what they could have been, you know. And I see it right. now with my husband, who's a wonderful father and a wonderful husband. Um, I never thought I'd have somebody like him in my life because you don't when you grow up through that. You don't believe you'll ever have that. And seeing the way he is with our children, I mean, the joy, just the joy that we all yeah. have together that my father and mother could have had. You know, there was exactly. no good reason that yeah. they couldn't have had that. Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. And people think we're avenging angels when we come out. We're not. You know, the world is no. very judgmental. 
And I don't come out with a sense of judgment. Even now when I speak about it, I feel like I'm speaking about someone else. I guess I'm quite dissociated from it in a lot of ways. But um, I come out because I hope it will help someone else. Exactly, exactly. And when you speak about, um, uh, going back to something we talked about earlier, just the exposure of these traumatic events to children, um, it's a real thing, and um, it's not just domestic violence. There's traumatic things happening to children all over the countries and world and yeah. um, in all forms of uh, horrendous violence. Yes. And um, when these children, as uh, you know, myself, enter things like the school system or, you know, something as, you know, beautiful and, you know, supposedly going to be wonderful as Sunday school or anything in the community, uh, we are at, we, we, I'm speaking of children, are at a loss as to how to act, how to trust, how to do anything. And um, prior to being an author, I was a school nurse for five years, and I saw um, these children coming into my office just over and over, and it's, it's, heartbreaking yeah. um, I mean, I, I and I sometimes feel I can spot them I mean in an absence of evidence and um, I understand that that's just me projecting and so I don't act on it but I do sometimes feel I can spot the ones that are living through what I went through you know um, I have no right. way of knowing how much of that is my own imagination so I just put it down to that but it's it's an eerie feeling when you feel you can spot it yeah but I think that it also, um, you know, teachers don't know exactly what to do with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they don't necessarily always know for sure what's mm-hmm. happened to mm-hmm. the child. Mm-hmm. And so if there's acting out or there's, um, you know, they're uh, so quiet they can't get them to interact or there's difficulty concentrating, um, all of these things are put into different um, categories and, um, you know, possibly the child is going to have to go on medication and all this. And so, um, it's certainly a lot easier to ignore than it is to delve into these things because they are ugly, ugly occurrences. And, um, I was blessed to have a couple of very insightful teachers. Now, when I was growing up, teachers were not encouraged to meddle into family lives at all. Um, it was definitely seen as meddling. And so no one ever came to me throughout my entire childhood and said, is something bad going on in your home? Not once, not ever. Um, But I did have a couple of teachers who I'm sure saw it and would come to me and say things like, you do so well, you know, you're such a good student. Um, And I clung to that. I clung to that so mightily. And I I believe it carried me through. I really do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, the empathetic yeah. way that they spoke, you know. It told yeah. me that they yeah. knew and they, they did sympathize, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a really good teacher uh, story in uh, storyline within my book. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a hint about it without uh, revealing too much of the book? Uh, well, towards the... Um, so, so I know that uh, we're talking a lot about domestic violence as far as uh, my book, The Best Girl, but 
there are also lots of sub themes that um, occur, and uh, one of them is uh, some pretty severe bullying that's happening in, in junior high, uh, seventh and eighth grade, and ninth grade. And uh, I've had to change schools from sixth grade to seventh grade, and not you know which is fairly typical. But not only changed schools, but they had changed the boundaries, and so there's only. Uh, maybe 10 of us in this huge school that are from my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I can't make sense of my world at all at home uh, or at school. And um, I'm really sinking into uh, some pretty significant despair. Um, but I, I, I also realize that I have a lot of responsibility in my life as far as for my sister and our home and my mom. Um, my mom has, um, as it comes out in the book, um, she was a very successful person outside of our home and, well, inside of our home too, but I mean, she was the breadwinner and she had a very important job and uh, she needed that job to keep us going because my dad was not able to work. And... Um, <clears throat> but once she got home, she was not able always to um, rise to the occasion to be the mom. And so I had a lot that I needed to do at home. And uh, then when I would go to school, um, it wasn't so great. And so anyway, in ninth grade, um, I show up in uh, a class called Creative Writing. And um, the teacher's name is Mr. Hoffman. And in ninth grade, you know, you're the top of the school and whatever, and so you don't really need to have seating assignments and all this kind of stuff when you get into class. And we get into class, and he's got a seating assignment chart uh, on a clipboard, and he's going to make us sit in certain places. And uh, I end up having to sit way in the front, and I was not happy because I was also, in addition to being bullied, I was very tall. And so I was very aware of that, and mm -hmm. I needed to be in the front because I knew everyone could see me or, you know, I was very self-conscious of that. And so anyway, I, and he was, uh, he was a uh, kind of befuddled-looking gentleman, uh, balding, um, black-rimmed glasses. I pretty much thought he was, you know, 70-ish. Uh, turns out he really wasn't that old. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, he, he starts us out on an assignment of keeping a journal every day. And we have to turn the journal in once a week. And if we write something in the journal every day, then we will get an A. It doesn't matter what we write. It could be a picture. It could be a word. Uh, we could write pages and pages if we wanted to, but something had to be documented every day. And uh, so that is the um, opening that I received to finally be able to let someone else know what's going on in my life, both at home and at school. And um, it's a couple of weeks in before I take that chance on that journal. But the words that he's writing back to me, um, the, let's just say dumb stuff that I write the first uh, week or two, 
were so encouraging and so affirming. And I'm like, he cares about what I had for supper last night? Like, I just couldn't mm-hmm. believe that someone mm-hmm. actually was taking more of an interest in me than ever really before. And yeah. uh, so then I start taking a chance on uh, first what's happening at school and then at home. And even at that, there are some times where I just write something really bad happened and I can't tell you about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he always, he wrote a note back to me under every single entry for Monday, oh, wow. for Tuesday, for Wednesday, for Thursday, and even if it was just one word yeah. or a few sentences. And it's crushing. It's so crushing much. as a child that's living through this to have an adult care. Um, yeah. I, I can remember, I can remember that feeling of knowing that an adult cared. It was it was crushing. Yeah. I mean, and we ask ourselves, what is the difference between someone like us, you and I, Joan, and yeah. someone like my uh-huh. older sister, Debbie, who who couldn't go on? Um, and the difference yeah. is hope. The difference is quite yeah. simple. It's hope. And when you have an adult in your life that cares, it gives you hope. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't the only adult that in my life that cared. You'll see others uh, throughout the book. Uh, that cared very deeply, but uh, cared in a way that um, didn't necessarily hit me the way. Yeah, you did. weren't as maybe as receptive to to it as for some reason that one really did. It was at the right time, at the right place, yep. and the right teacher. So let me yeah. speak to teachers for a second. You know who these children are. You know, please use your compassion every single day. You don't have to focus on them entirely. In fact. They would probably prefer you don't mark them out in that way, but you do need to use your compassion when you address them. So, yes. Yeah, and that, that I, I will throw that out there to teachers everywhere because you meant the world to me, and uh, I know right. what you mean to children in these situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah well, Mr. Hoffman, uh, able to, uh, I was able to track him down and he actually came to both of my pre-launch events and uh, has read the book and is one of my biggest uh, promoters for the wow, book. Wow, so that is wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is terrific. I'm so glad you were able to do that. Unfortunately, I, I think that um, the teachers that I referred to are probably long gone. Because we were military, we moved all around. And so um, oh, sure. either long gone or, you know, no longer to be found let's put it that way (laughs) we had one though um my grade nine teacher sister mcneil and i'm not catholic and i wasn't raised catholic and this was a huge bone of contention in our house i insisted on going to the the local catholic school in town once once i had to go off base to school i had my choice of schools and uh, i signed Mm -hmm. up for the catholic school because it just looked like the nicer of the two schools that i could get to um and I never regretted it. I spent one year in Catholic school, and they were so good to me. They knew I was this little prod, you know, so they never made me attend the religious right. studies. I was on every debate team because I was always the I was always the pro when everyone else was the con, you know. Oh, funny. So, and they oh, were funny. so, so good to me. During religious studies, I had the job of cleaning the staff room. Well, our history teacher was Sister McNeil, and... After the terrible, terrible beating that my mother took when we were getting on the train, and I didn't know until the day before that um, 
we were leaving because she kept it to herself right up till the last minute. I guess she didn't want to provoke another beating. Um, so I had told the school, I won't be here tomorrow, you know, we're leaving. She came to the train station with several baskets full of food, magazines, games for, for me and my sisters. And um, she had never met my mother and she just stood there and hugged my mother. I think she knew, you know, she just knew. And yeah. even though I could never tell anyone back then, I'm right. sure she knew. Yeah. And uh, she was yeah. just so kind. Um, yeah. anyways, yeah. Joan, it's been wonderful having you on and I'm sorry for having done so much of the talking. I wouldn't normally, but as you've probably guessed, the topic is really dear to me as well. So for our yeah. listeners, the book is The Best Girl and it is by Joan Hicks. Is it Joan Hicks Boone? Is that the full name? B-O-O-N-E? That's correct. Okay, excellent. And where can they find the book, Joan? They can uh, find it really anywhere. It's available on Amazon. Um, any bookstore can order it. There's also an Audible version, which is outstanding. If uh, any of your listeners are into Audible, I am uh, into Audible. I will get the Audible version definitely. Thank you for saying that. Oh, mm -hmm. the um, the narrator Marnie Baumer. Oh my goodness, she she just nailed it. So. Um, yes, you can order it uh, at any um, bookstore, uh, even if they don't have it in stock. It's available through Ingram, which is where uh, most bookstores order their books. So um, you can uh, really get it anywhere. And the website to find Joan is joanhicksboon.com, and that is J-O-A-N-H-I-C-K-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. And it's an absolutely exceptional website, Joan. I'm looking at it right now. I encourage all of our listeners to go and have a look at your website and to buy the book, The Best Girl, either in print, e-edition, or audible. And thank you yep. very much for joining us, Joan. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Let it rock. Well, thank you so much for having me. I want to thank Joan Hicksboon for joining us today on the Dead to Rights podcast and also for the wonderful insights into our craft. And now, listeners, please stay with you as I bring you my own taut psychological thriller from North on the Yellowhead, Carrick Publishing, titled Axe Husband. And yes, we do have just a small play on words there. Axe Husband by Donna Carrick. People often asked Kimberly why she'd left. Ray was a good man by most accounts. He seldom drank excessively. He opened doors for her, never raised his voice, worked hard to provide. Besides, they'd been in love. Everyone knew it. To this day, both boys, Phil and Paul, held the divorce against her. They never said so but she could see it in their eyes. They blamed her for the loss of their father, gone for no apparent reason. Kimberly Johnson never knew what to say, so she held her tongue. Fifteen years of marriage. You think you know a person. You split your body in half, giving him children. You hold his hand, listen to his worries, even when you're full to the breaking point with your own. 
You watch your spending, even though you work hard too, because you know money is one of the things he worries about. You're gracious to his family and friends, and always careful not to pay too much attention to anyone else, because even though he doesn't mention it, you get the feeling he disapproves. You walk the dog when it's your turn, feed the cat, clean the house, and cook the meals. None of these things are beyond the call of wifely duty. Billions of women carry out these tasks every day. You seldom complain. Because you've got a loving husband and decent children. That makes it all worthwhile. Kimberly certainly thought she knew Ray. She'd seen him at his worst, when the worries got to be too much and the boss was pressing his buttons and the car broke down. She'd seen him at his best, full of joy when the boys were born, when they spoke their first words, took their first steps. She thought she'd seen every side of him. "'Get the flashlight, Paul!' Phil shouted from the bottom of the stairs. Phil was the oldest and used to giving orders, which six-year-old Paul cheerfully obeyed. "'I can't find it,' Paul said. "'It's in my room. Look on the dresser. It's got new batteries. We'll need it at night.' "'Found it!' Paul tore down the stairs, almost falling, but catching the handrail just in time. "'I got the fishing rods,' Phil said. "'Are we going to see fireflies?' Paul asked. Phil looked at his father. "'I sure hope so,' Ray said. Kimberly took the fishing rods from Phil and tucked them into the back of the van. "'This time of years there should be a lot,' she said. Ray nodded. "'Yep, lots,' the boys laughed. "'Come on, guys, let's get this show on the road.' Ray drove. Kimberly could have used another hour of sleep, but she stayed awake to keep him company. Besides, the boys were so excited, she didn't want to miss the fun. Choosing a campsite was easy. They'd left the city early enough to beat the crowds, and they opted for a large, isolated lot away from the traffic, but still within easy walking distance from the bathroom facilities and the beach. Pitching their new tent was another matter. Ray's family had never camped when he was growing up. Kimberly had plenty of experience, but as every woman knows, it isn't wise to butt in when Dad is instructing the kids, so she offered only subtle hints regarding how best to construct the canvas walls. After several failed attempts to secure the center pole, Ray's normally cheerful mood began to fray. Being the eldest, Phil was expected to help the most, so he bore the brunt of Ray's jagged comments. Finally, Kimberly could no longer stay on the sidelines. Let me help with that, she said. Ray snarled something inaudible, but Kimberly stepped in anyway. Within half an hour, the tent was up and the air mattresses were pumped. Ray was quiet, but his sulking was preferable to snapping at the boys. Can we go to the beach, Phil said. Yeah, Paul chimed in. Let's go to the beach. Kimberly looked at Ray. It took some effort on his part, but he finally smiled. Come on, he agreed. Let's change into our swimsuits. Not wanting his mood to slide again, Kimberly herded the boys into the tent to change. What about you, Mom? Phil said. 
It pays to think ahead, she said. I wore my swimsuit under my clothes. It was a hot day, even in the relative cool of the wooded national park. The kids ran down the beach path, anxious to jump into the water. Not too fast, guys, Ray said. Wait for us. He was struggling with the beach chairs in a small cooler. Kimberly had a large beach bag over her shoulder with towels, books, and sunscreen. She held out her free hand for the cooler. I've got it, he said. You're sure? Yeah. The shady beach path opened onto a stretch of sparkling sand around a silver lake. Outstanding, she said. Great choice. She'd never been to this park, but Ray had heard from a friend it was well-maintained and woodsy with a sandy beach. Somewhat mollified by the praise, he grinned. Ray set up the chairs, and Kimberly smoothed her towel on the sand. It had been a particularly stressful time at work. The competition was heating up, and the talk was all about cutting costs, which meant more work for everyone, as well as reduced job security. On top of work stresses, Kimberly had also had to spend a fair amount of energy keeping a positive tone at home. Ray had been testy during the past few weeks. She couldn't blame him, really. He struggled with balancing the family finances, especially as their investments took a beating. In any event, it was out of character for him to snap at her or the children. She thought it best to bite her tongue and let the difficult period pass. He needed this vacation as much as she did. He sat on one of the chairs and pulled the other closer to him. Not going to sit, he said. I will later, she said, lying down on the towel. I'm beat. You were tired when we left the house, he said. Kimberly nodded. She cracked open her novel but couldn't focus on the words. The sunshine and the happy sound of children playing smoothed her raw nerves, and before long she was dozing happily. She woke abruptly as Ray nudged her with his right foot. "'Are you watching the kids?' he asked. His voice was testy again. She didn't know what his problem was, but these mood swings were unpleasant, to say the least. Sighing, she got up and sat in the chair. The seeds of a nasty headache were beginning to take root. Exhaustion. Too many hours of trying to say the right thing. Walking on eggshells. Hey, Ray said, if you don't think they need to be supervised, go back to sleep. I thought you were watching them, she said. I'm tired, too. I know you are. Do you want a nap? I'll keep an eye on the boys, she said. Forget it. Ray reached into the cooler and pulled out a covered plastic cup. She knew he'd mixed a drink beforehand. He offered her one, but she shook her head. It would only knock her out. Ray wasn't much of a drinker normally. She hoped the alcohol would take the edge off his mood. Kimberly reached for her book. The boys laughed and played, waving at them from the water. Come on in, Phil said. It's great. She slipped the book into the bag and pulled her t-shirt over her head. The water might energize her. Yay, Mom's coming, Paul shouted. From the corner of her eye, she saw Ray's face contorted in an uncharacteristic scowl. Before she could react, he'd lost the dark look and was smiling. Last one in, he shouted, leaping from the chair. He had a head start, and besides, Kimberly didn't try very hard to raise him. 
She ran till the water was up to her knees, then walked, letting her skin adjust to the cold. Brr, she said. Chilly. It's fine once you're in, Ray said. Without warning, he turned and knocked her into the water. Hey, she shouted. Knock it off. Don't be a baby, he said, laughing. You're not ice cream. You won't melt. Kimberly didn't know what to say. In their fifteen years of marriage and the two years of dating prior to that, Ray had never handled her with anything but tenderness. She was offended, but she wasn't physically hurt. She decided to let the incident pass without an argument. Come on, guys, Paul called, waving at his parents. She waved back and ran to the boys. Ray followed. That evening, Ray paid ten dollars for a large bundle of firewood. Kimberly baked potatoes and barbecued steaks on the hibachi, while Ray sharpened sticks. After dinner, they roasted marshmallows. Who wants to hear a ghost story, Ray asked. I do, Phil said. Paul shook his head, but seeing his big brother's enthusiasm, he held his tongue. He sat on Kimberly's lap. A long time ago, Ray began. How long? Paul asked. Hundreds of years, Ray said. Were there TVs? Paul said. Stop interrupting, Kimberly said. She could see Ray was becoming annoyed. There were no TVs, Ray said. No cars, no guns, no video games. People would gather together to tell stories to pass the time. That's how people far from the cities would learn the news. Traveling groups would act out plays, sing songs, and tell stories. One of those stories has been passed down from father to son for hundreds of years, and now, tonight, it's finally time for me to tell you both the story of the headless harlot. What's a harlot? Paul asked. A prostitute, Phil said. A lady, Kimberly said. A lady, Ray answered, who isn't a lady. Mwa-ha-ha-ha-ha. He held the flashlight under his chin, causing light and shadows to compete for dominance of his features. I'm scared, Paul said. Shh, Phil put a finger to his lips. Come on, Kimberly said, lifting Paul from her knee. I have to use the washroom. I'll take you with me. Maybe we'll see some fireflies. It's just a story, Ray said, turning off the flashlight. I want to hear it, Phil said. Forget it. I wouldn't want to scare anyone. Great, thought Kimberly. Now he'll sulk again. Still, better that than be up all night because the boys are having nightmares. Paul was only five, too young for stories about decapitating scarlet women. Sometimes Ray had no sense at all. When she returned from the bathroom with Paul, she found Ray sitting alone at the fire. Where's Phil? she asked. Getting ready for bed, Ray said without looking up. I'll take him to the bathroom, she said. Whatever. Paul, you go get into your jammies, too. The picnic table and campfire were a distance from the tent, on the other side of a minor ridge. Paul was too short to see the tent from where they stood. He pulled his mother's hand, not wanting to cross the distance alone in the darkness. Kimberly walked him to where the tent stood on higher ground at the edge of the woods. You ready for bed? she called into Phil. His answer came as a grunt from inside the tent. Come on then, she said. I'll walk you to the bathroom while Paul's changing. 
I don't want to be alone, Paul whined. Don't worry, she said. You can change and we'll all go together. You might need to pee again anyway. Phil emerged from the tent but wouldn't meet Kimberly's eyes. Her neck tingled. What's the matter? she asked quietly. Voices could carry at night. She didn't want Ray to hear. Nothing. She took Phil's hand in her right one and held out her left hand for Paul. Together, she and the boys covered the distance to the public washrooms. Phil carried the toothbrushes and Paul the washcloths. When the boys were cleaned up and ready for bed, they walked back to the campsite together. Night, Phil, she said, kissing her eldest son on the forehead. Night, Mom. Have a good sleep, Paul. She pulled the sleeping bag up to his chin and kissed him on the cheek. I love you, he said. Once they were settled, Kimberly considered turning in as well. Ray was in a sour mood and would be lousy company. Still, if she went to bed without saying good night to him, he'd really have something to sulk about. Might as well see if he'd like a cup of tea first. She zipped up the tent flap and made her way quietly back to Ray. She could see the campfire even over the ridge. The flames had climbed higher since she'd left with the boys. Can I make you a cup of tea, she asked. Ray didn't look up. No, thanks, he said. Would you like anything before I turn in? Nope. Okay, then. Good night. Good night. During their brief exchange, Ray's eyes did not leave the campfire. All right, she thought. Be like that. Kimberly wasn't planning to lose sleep over it. She woke a few hours later, unsure at first of her surroundings. The boys were fast asleep, their childish snores barely audible. Ray hadn't come to bed yet. Oh, for Pete's sake, she muttered, careful not to wake the boys. She pulled on her shoes and quietly unzipped the tent flap. She couldn't leave Ray outside all night. He wasn't used to camping. Maybe he'd passed out. It wasn't like him to drink excessively, but she'd lost count of the number of drinks he'd consumed. Besides, he might set the whole campground on fire. As she approached the ridge, she could see the flames. They leapt and danced, throwing sparks high into the night-black clearing. Was Ray asleep near the fire? Thwack! Apparently not. Thwack! What the hell was he doing? She peeked over the ridge. Ray had an axe. He raised it repeatedly, splintering the picnic table. Thwack! Kimberly watched in horror. This man was so unlike the husband she thought she knew that she didn't dare to move. His eyes glowed orange in the campfire. His face was a study in rage. He was saying something, not muttering exactly, but not speaking loudly either. His voice was almost a chant. She had to strain to hear. "'Kill the bitch,' he said. "'Kill the black-hearted whore and her bastard sons. No one will know.' Kill her and throw her into the fire where she belongs. Cut off her head and burn it. Thwack went the axe. Let the whore and her offspring burn in hell. Thwack. People never understood why Kimberly left Ray the way she did. It was inexplicable. She just packed the boys into the minivan one night during their family holiday and drove away leaving her husband of 15 years stranded in the far north without so much as a goodbye. No one could figure it out. No one except for Kimberly. And maybe Ray.
the end. I want to thank you all for listening to Axe Husband, my psychological thriller that appeared in North on the Yellowhead, Carrick Publishing. And I also want to tell you that this story is loosely based, and maybe not so loosely based, on a real experience that happened to me in my youth. Um, I actually saw this occur, so it was pretty frightening when it happened. Um, of course, the characters are all fictional, but the breaking down of the picnic table with an axe in the middle of the night by somebody who was beyond drunk, it was terrifying when I saw it happen. So um, let that add an extra layer of chill to the story for you. Now, I've got to ask, are you a published author? Would you like to be profiled on Dead to Rights, the podcast? We still have a couple of slots open for 2018, and we'll soon be looking to fill our 2019 weekly features. We'd love to hear from you at Publishing at rogers.com, and be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line so I'll know what you're writing about. As our regular listeners already know, we're all about the literary community. We love hearing from readers and writers alike. You can touch base with us at deadtorights.ca, on Facebook, or under Dead to Rights on Twitter at Dead to Rights Pod. Of course, you can always find me personally, Donna Carrick, on Facebook, or under my personal page, or as Carrick Publishing. We're also tweetable at Donna underscore Carrick, at Alex underscore Carrick, or at Carrick Pub. If you have questions related to the book industry for any of our authors that you would like me to raise in a future interview, don't hesitate to reach out through our online forums or by email. Be sure to join us next week when we'll bring you our interview with author Tina Wolfe of Exacting Justice. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by our son, Ted Carrick, as is all of our story scoring music. Thanks for subscribing to the podcast and please leave us some love at iTunes or Google Play. We would greatly appreciate the help in moving up the rankings. We'll see you next week. Free, yet it rides. Let it ride.